You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Getting to know the living God who made the world. The living God who made the world. And we just read from Genesis uh, chapter 1. Genesis means the beginning. And we read of the creation record that God, when God had made uh, all that is in the earth as we know it today in six days. Very grand chapter, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, you know, let there be light. And there was light. And, and, and we might have noticed as we read through there the number of times it says God made this and God made that. God, um, for instance, uh, there in, in, in right, right through the record, actually, and it really is um, comes out there in verse 31 where it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we'll come back to that chapter a little later as we move through our uh, address tonight, but. There is a, is a fundamental truth that we want to just put up there in the screen to start off tonight and just to consider that these things are very important that we're considering tonight. They are matters of life and death. Life and death. It's life eternal to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It says John 17 verse 3 in the New Testament. John chapter 17 verse 3. Life eternal to know our God. So the obverse applies. If you don't know God, then you don't have the opportunity for life eternal. And I'm afraid to say there's many out there that claim to know God don't actually do know him. They don't know him. So tonight we're going to look at, in a very brief way, how we can get to know God, the living God, who made the heavens and the earth. And we just read about his wonderful creation that he created there back in Genesis. He's a God who loves to create. He loves to make things. He's a spirit being and he loves to create and to reproduce himself, as it were. And that's his intention, as we'll see later from some of the passages of Scripture. He's a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this word means sincerity the the second word there means to have sincerity in our worship it's an attitude of mind that is based upon truth that's what god desires not any kind of worship but a worship that is sincere and truthful so the genesis creation record one verse one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth in the very first verse In the beginning, God created. This didn't happen by chance. There's divine intelligence behind this creation. And that's what we saw in the record. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we look about us, we look to the macro or to the the micro, we look at the heavens and the earth, or we look down through uh, microscopes to the minute things in creation, we see an absolute, abundant array of life that is indescribable to the human mind, really. We can focus on one little thing at a time, but we really don't know how most of that works. But God has it all at his fingertips. Everything throughout the whole universe 
is sustained by this God that we know of the Bible because God is a spirit. Everything's sustained and made up of his spirit. In the beginning, the earth was out without form and, vo- uh, and, and void. It was without form or waste and void and empty. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God's creative power worked upon that, that bare substance in order to bring life out of that. And that's what he did. And so forth. And the record goes on right through to verse 31 that we just read. He saw everything that he had made and it was very good. It wasn't perfect because humankind was amongst that creation and it needed a lot more work yet. So time went on and here we are today, some 6,000 years later. And the Bible is still the most reliable source, reliable record that we have available that God exists and God has a plan and purpose with this earth. There's nothing else. The Bible has the most reliable record by far. Matter of fact, it's a very popular book. We had this overhead up just recently. 3.9 billion copies sold in the last 50 years. The top 10 most read books in the world, we can see them up there on the screen, and the Bible by far outshines the rest. The top 10 most read books, I think I might have said back then, are certainly the most possessed and owned book, but maybe not the most read book. I think Genesis 1, they say Genesis 1 verse 1 is the most read verse in the whole Bible because not a lot of people get past the first chapter or so, you know. But um, whether that's true or not, I don't don't know how far people get with it, but I know that a lot of people don't read the Bible that they have at home, which is a shame. And we encourage you tonight to take that Bible down from off your shelves and open it up and read it because you'll be very surprised if you stick with it. Well... We are confident that the Bible is accurate and is reliable and can be trusted and relied upon. And we, we hope to do, what we hope to do tonight is to show to you how you too can become confident and why you can be confident in what you read. Is the Bible reliable? Well, we have a lot of sources and a lot of ways we can prove that it is reliable. The book that we have today, the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, you know, written over a period of 1,500 years by 29 of, uh, different authors, uh, harmonious right through the whole 66 books of the Bible. Is it reliable? Yes, what we have today is very, very accurate text. It hasn't changed over the uh, thousands of years uh, that it's been uh, available. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in, in 19, um, 1947, uh, give testimony to that fact. If you don't know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were about 40 fragments of old, um, old scrolls, some metals, some, some on papyrus and other, other types of material, but 40,000 fragments were used to reconstruct 500 different books. And, and most of those reconstructions are the books of the Bible. Very old Hebrew text. 2,100 years old. And I'll show you something in a minute, something that's actually been found recently that's even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they found is there's absolutely no difference with our copies of the, of the Old Testament that we have today. So there's no corruption of the text in all that time. It's quite amazing that those scrolls that were found in those dry caves in Qumran and Israel 
preserved that text down through all that time and they were able to piece together the pieces and compare it with our modern Hebrew text and it's almost dead accurate. And the conclusion is there hasn't been a corruption in the text in all that time. Now, as far as internal evidence goes, the Bible says that it is, it is true. The Bible says that it is, is a book that can be trusted in many different places. The Bible says that, that the scriptures come from God and they are, they are God-breathed, as it were. They are made up of his spirit. As, as God breathed out, these, these holy men of old wrote down these words. When we speak, we breathe out. That's what causes the words to be formed. And that's what God did. He breathed out by his spirit word and produced this text that we have today through those prophets and, and scribes of old. It says there in 2 Timothy 3.16 that it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. That's the NIV version. There's many versions of the Bible and we quite often use the NIV or mostly the King James Version. Great, great texts they are and good to use and often the, the new uh, King James as well. But there it is in the NIV. All scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And then right over in the old prophets, in Isaiah 8 verse 2, God says there through his prophets, he says, to the Lord, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, because there is no light or knowledge in them. Don't you think that the God that made the heavens and the earth and had the power to do that, that he would have the authority to write words such as this that mankind should follow in order to be saved and to live a good and honest and moral life. God knows best. He's the great author. He is the creator and the sustainer of all life. That's why he can say that his word is truth. He knows what's best for his creation. Even Jesus said that. Jesus, his son, his only begotten son, was born two millenniums ago. That was born two millenniums ago. He was, didn't pre-exist. He's not God himself, but he is the son of God. And he said these words, God's word is truth. John 17, verse 17. It's a part of his prayer. As far as eternal, uh, external evidence is concerned, there is absolute bucket loads of that. We, there's, there's just so much. But we've got a few brief slides here, and some might say that they're not so brief, but uh, tonight we're going to have some... Uh, a few slides about the archaeological evidence that's available today in the world if we want to go and check on them. We can go to our website, which uh, on our computers, we can, we can type in on the bar there on YouTube and we can, uh, we can look at miles of information about archaeological discoveries that prove the Bible true. Uh, we can look at Wikipedia, which is a great source there as well. And... Um, we find out where all these discoveries are actually kept and there's a great lot of information about these um, things that they found in different lands, particularly the Middle East, that confirm the Bible to be true. For instance, in 2 Kings 24, uh, a Babylonian tablet that describes the capture of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar was found not so long ago. Uh, in Daniel, uh, a clay cylinder just over here on the left of the screen, the middle, a clay cylinder found at Babylon in 1854 refers to Belshazzar, the, uh, one of the kings of Babylon, B.C. 580. I think he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and then the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which is in the uh, London Museum, the, the British Museum. The famous Cyrus Cylinder. A clay cylinder of King Cyrus describes the return of the Jewish captives after the liberation of Babylon. That was only found in 1879. And it was it, it, a cylinder that's six, uh, was, was written on in cuneiform 600 BC. And they're very good at interpreting cuneiform language now. And they, they've got a whole, a whole uh, great uh, message there about Cyrus' capture. He calls it liberation. <laughs> Sounds like President Putin, doesn't it? Liberating Ukraine. Uh, hasn't changed much, but that's what he called it, the liberation of Babylon in uh, about 600 BC. And of course, Daniel 4, verse 30, the 2,600-year-old bricks discovered at Babylon and all the excavations there, the, the mighty city of Nebuchadnezzar that was supposedly never, ever to be destroyed and always to last to eternity, but it's gone. But they've dug in the desert sands and found all sorts of things there. These things can be tracked down and found in different museums of the world. You can actually see them with your own eyes. Now, this is something that's very interesting there. Uh, up the top there, uh, some silver scrolls dating to 600 BC quote this passage of Scripture, Numbers 6, verse 22 to 27. Uh, it goes like, uh, like this. I've got it written down here, but we know these words well, don't we? And it's Numbers 6, verse 24 says... Um, in our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, Numbers 6 verse 24 says, words that we know well and we often sing these at baptisms, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That's what they found, that quote directly from Numbers on these silver scrolls that were found in Jerusalem just recently. In 1979, well, when I say recently, in the history of the world, it's very recent, isn't it? That's the Ketiv Hinnom scrolls, little tiny silver scrolls, exact replicas of Numbers 6, verse 24, and a few other, other things as well. It's very interesting to look at that, actually. There's lots of other things they found in that um, hidden uh, archaeological um, um, excavation that they made, they found a little hidden chamber that nobody had found before and all this other stuff came out. 600 BC it was dated at and uh, down further an inscription discovered in 1880 describes the construction of Hezekiah's tunnel and that's um, 700 BC. That inscription, I've seen it with my own eyes, it was a replica of the original in that Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem and the original one, they cut out of the wall in that tunnel and it's over in the Istanbul Museum now because the Turks, and, Turks uh, occupied the, time at the, uh, the place at the time. So that proved the Bible record again, 2 Kings 20 and so forth. Um, these other tablets and, and, and items and cities that they've, un, that they've dug up and it just confirms the Bible over and over again. The Bible is very accurate. And many scholars go to the Bible for guidance in certain areas to help them to uh, confirm things that they find or things that they read. Now, Moabite stone, evidence of the existence of Omri, king of Israel, 840 BC, 2 Kings 3 verse 4. The back obelisk of Assyria, evidence of Jehu, king of Israel. The Lachish Ostraka, evidence of Sennacherib's invasion of the land, 
uh, little letters on clay found in 1935. And the Nabonidus inscription, um, which is this cylinder, uh, coming up in a second, it's a proof of the existence of Belshazzar in Daniel 5 and 550 BC. There's a cylinder that they found. Very interesting stuff. All cuneiform language confirms the biblical stories that they haven't been changed and, and altered. And we'll read it. It says, This mid-century, mid-6th century BC cuneiform cylinder was discovered in the temple of Shamish at Sippar in Iraq. It tells of the Babylonian king Nabonidus' reconstruction of pagan temples and the discovery of ancient inscriptions of former kings. More importantly, however, it offers historical confirmation of Belshazzar, who was previously either considered legendary or the Bible was mistaken to identify him as king, since he was absent from any official list. But it confirms the historical figure of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son and co-regent or king. Explains why Daniel could rise no higher than the third ruler in the kingdom. If we know our Bible stories, we know that Daniel was a very faithful young prophet of God who was elevated in status because of uh, certain uh, prophecies that he interpreted for the great king Nebuchadnezzar, etc., and raised to the third ruler in the kingdom. That's the reason, because the king's son was in second place. All this is on that Cyrus cylinder. Amazing stuff. And then... These other items that they found, there's a cylinder down there again. It contains lots of information other than just about Nabonidus, but other things as well. And up the top there is a very, very good condition glazed brick line that comes from the king's throne in Babylon, uh, adjacent to the king's throne and the king's throne room. And that's been put together in bricks and reconstructed in the, in the bricks that they found with, this, with glazing on them. Very well preserved and so forth. Lots of stuff. Bible history has been proved to be accurate. Sir William Ramsey, a religious professor and renowned historian and archaeologist from the last century, was compelled to conclude that the New Testament writer Luke was one of the greatest historians of all time. This guy is no fool. He knows what he's talking about. A religious professor and renowned historian and archaeologist. A great, uh, a great background and was just, in the end, he had overwhelming evidence that Luke was one of the greatest historians that he'd ever come across. Ramsey's thorough research and conclusions are published in a series of books. Once again, if, you, if you're that way inclined, you can go and check these things out. They're in libraries around the world. All this stuff's in museums and gives us confidence that the book that we read here, the Bible, we're going to put a lot of time and effort into it because it's not an easy book to read. If we're going to put that time and effort in, we want to make sure it's true and it's right. I can understand how people feel about that because it's an awful lot of reading and we don't want to read about fairy tales. It's, it's a true record of the God of heaven and uh, there's much other stuff we can talk about as well. Ancient clay tablets, northern Syria, recent proof that writing was well developed in Abraham's day and the copyists, the people that went through and copied out these the ancient texts and, and, and brought the Bible to us today, uh, way back in time, they were the rules that they used to copy these down, copy these words down. These ancient scribes were onerous. They were highly detailed and required a lot of care to get it accurate. And that was their whole life depended upon 
getting these words accurate. The Talmud, the, um, the collection of rabbinical writings that, that, that contain the Jewish law, contains the rules for copying Hebrew scripture. Very detailed and very strict about the whole thing. The Masoretes, 100 AD, were, controlled the standard text and they numbered the verses, the words and the letters of every book because it's a, a numerical system, Hebrew and Greek. English doesn't have it, but, but the Hebrew does. And they numbered the verses and the words and the letters and they calculated the middle word and the middle te- letter of each to maintain minute attention to make sure that transmission from one to another was accurate. We, we can't even kind of hardly relate to that. That's, it's, it's mind-boggling the amount of effort they went to. But I, I believe that God was behind that, making sure that his word was still accurate in these days in which we live. So yes, we can be available. Uh, we can be confident in the Bible. We can be confident in the Bible. A lot of available ancient manuscripts that, that are available today and listed down on this side of the screen there, we might recognise some of these names of philosophers and historians, etc. Plato and Aristotle, Homer, Pliny and Tacitus. You know, they are recognised ancient philosophers and writers and historians. People often refer to them. And they trust them. They, they put a lot of, lot of weight on those guys. But the evidence to support their writings is very minimal compared to the Bible. Of all available manuscripts, ancient manuscripts in the world, the New Testament has by far the shortest time span from the time of writing to the earliest copy. It's only 30 years. Whereas these guys, from the time they wrote, like 1,200 years. For instance, Plato, Aristotle, like 1,400 years from the time of writing to the time of, of discovery and usage. So the Bible can be trusted. It gives us a high level of confidence that there's been no corruption of the text. Now, as far as other matters are concerned, we, we can go to prophecy to help us con- help confirm that the Bible is a very accurate record. And we mean fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Ezekiel uh, chapter uh, 37 and 38 Remember these young prophets who were captives in Babylon under that mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, 600 BC? These young guys are over there. They were prophets of God and they wrote these things down and they interpreted the events of the world and they came to pass. We went to Daniel chapter 2. Here's a prophecy that reveals world history from the times of the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar until modern Europe and Christ's return. Imagine that. 2,600 years ago? It's mind-boggling, really. And there's a lot more information there, like uh, we could drag out of Ezekiel 37 and 38. 37 is a prophecy about the revival of the nation of Israel, and we learn how Israel is intertwined in the purpose of God and how it will be the future capital of the world. Jerusalem, the capital city, will be the place where Jesus Christ, the King of the world, reigns from. And we see how all that comes into being into God's plan and purpose. The revival of the nation of Israel dispersed and destroyed and scattered all over the world. How it's the Valley of Bones has given life and breath in that vision of, of, of uh, Ezekiel 37 
and how the Jews are brought back into Israel after two millenniums of dispersion, a national resurrection from the furnace of the Holocaust to a prosperous but troublesome home then that we see in the, in the Middle East today. And we, we wonder and ponder at that. Why this little nation? Why is it so... So many people focus upon this little tiny slither of land on the eastern Mediterranean shores. And yet God has a plan and purpose of that place because they are his witnesses. Ezekiel 38 is a prophecy about Armageddon and the latter days and it identifies the nations involved. And Isaiah 43, as will be just said, that Israel are his witnesses, that he is God and that he has a plan and purpose with the earth. Then we could go to Micah 4 and 5 and we see that here's Jesus Christ prophesied before his birth. You know, like 700 BC. Then we could go to Luke 21, the liberation of Jerusalem and the confusion, distress and the fear over the nations just prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the conclusion is, yes, we can be very confident in the scriptural record. If we read our Bibles, as we said from the outset, that's the way to get to know the living God, to read our Bibles. That's the bottom line, really. That's the opening statement. Get to know the living God and learn how to follow him by reading your Bible. And that's no easy task. We admit that. It takes quite some time. It would probably take about nine months to read it through if you spent about 30 minutes each day. It's a big read. The Bible is very, very beneficial. It gives us direction and counsel and comfort and hope. It gives us the, the opportunity and hope for a better life, not only now, but for the future. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It teaches us about moral values, about respect and mercy, about compassion and empathy. You know, a lot of people don't know about these, these, uh, these very lofty values. The world about us is not very concerned about this kind of um, life. Many people aren't. But we put it to you, dear friends, and, and people that, that may be out there listening to us tonight and those um, in the audience, we, we say that the Bible is the best book available today for counsel and guidance and instruction in moral values. And above that, stretching across all of those things, is God's plan for the earth. It teaches us about God's plan. And it teaches us about ourselves, about how our sins can be forgiven and how we, our consciences can be cleaned, clear. And another thing is, as we read the Bible, we develop something called faith. Faith is belief in God. So we, we read and we grow in faith. We grow in, 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 in faith and belief with essentially are the same thing. And faith motivates a person to carry out God's will. And when we read the biblical record, we see these men and women that were incredibly faithful and incredibly motivated to do the things that they normally wouldn't do. And they went out and did them. Amazing things far beyond what they normally would do. Think about Jesus, the Apostle Paul. Go back to the Old Testament to Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, faithful men of old, amazing things. 
And you can't please God without faith. You need to grow in faith. Faith and works work together, says James in chapter 2, verse 20. Faith and works. So those are the things that, um, that we will grow on us and will learn as we read the Bible. Because as we get to know the living God who made the world, we, we actually become more in tune with his mind. We start to develop a mind that is spiritual, a mind that is like God. We have to read the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. We have to pray about it and meditate about it. And as we do, we carefully learn about Jesus Christ, his son too. Very important because Jesus Christ is the focus of God's creation on this earth. Very important. Focus on Jesus. Read the four Gospels where we find a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And there's many other places as well, of course. But Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll find there these different accounts of the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And of course, God requires us to believe the gospel and to be baptised. And that's something else we need to think about as we go. They're all intertwined, uh, the gospel and baptism. Not too difficult, but um, needs to be teased out and understood a little before we um, become baptised. We, uh, we find, as we go through, we, we'll come across certain passages of Scripture that, that expound to us in a little bit of detail God, what God is like himself. And this may be on people's minds at, at the moment, is what is God really like himself? If we want to get to know God, what is he like? And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 says these words. He says, Have you not known... Have you not heard that the everlasting God, Yahweh, that's his divine name, the Lord, we'll talk about that in a moment, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. Okay, so he's very different to us, very different to me. There is no searching of his understanding. And though we send a telescope way off into the outer, outer reaches of our uh, immediate solar system, way up beyond the Hubble telescope, out beyond that, there's the latest one out there somewhere, will still never search out his understanding or the greatness of his might or creation. There's no searching of his understanding. That's the God that we're talking about tonight. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, it says there, Now under the king eternal, God is a king and he is eternal. He is immortal, he is invisible. He is the only wise God. How's that? He's the only wise God. So all the gods that we see around the world today and we see gods of stone and all kinds of uh, icons and resemblances of the God that they have in their imaginations, they are false gods. The only wise God is the God of the Bible. And that's a fact. Be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen, says Paul to the young Timothy uh, back in the first century. The king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Now, God is also a father. Remarkably, as we get to know him, we get to realise that he is a father. And in Matthew 5.16, um, 
It says there, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. God can become our Father through faith and through this divine adoption into the, uh, into the brotherhood of Christ. He can become our Father which is in heaven. Without that, without this association with God and knowledge of God, we have no Father in heaven. How's that? All things, these are the words of Jesus Christ, and these are worthy of close attention. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, said Jesus. Wow, big, state, big statement. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That's Matthew 11, verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows... <laughs> Sorry about that. I actually thought I'd turn the volume off that phone before I sat, stood up here tonight. So these are the words of Jesus Christ. No man knows the Son intimately like the Father does. And no, no, neither knows any man the Father save the Son in this intimate, close way. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. That's where we come in, dear friends. So the God that we worship and the God that we're talking about tonight is a living God. He's a living God. He loves to produce life. He loves to create things. He doesn't like destroying things. John 6 verse 57 says, As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, these are the words of Jesus Christ. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. And Matthew says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Mark 12, verse 27. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So there's four first century faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who are all saying the same thing. John, Matthew, Peter and Mark. That God is a living father. This living Father hath made the world, as we saw that before in, in, in uh, Genesis. But as we go to the New Testament record, we see that, that um, the record of Acts says the same things as the other uh, records there and Matthew and John pretty well. And they've they, they got in the back of their mind what's gone on in Genesis, obviously, and the creation, etc. And it says that God made the world and all things therein. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. He made the world. Why does he need a temple to dwell in? Why does he need a great big building to, to, uh, to, to, to be focused upon or to worship, be worshipped? In Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? So what that's telling us there among many other things, is that Jesus endorsed the Old Testament record. He endorsed the creation record. And he, he endorsed the importance of marriage. In Matthew 19, verse 4, 
In John 1 verse 3, it says there too, all things were made by him, and without, without him was not anything made that was made. These things did not happen by chance. These things did not evolve. They were made by the great creator of the heavens and earth as a part of his plan with the earth. He intends to fill the earth with his glory. He has a plan. He has a plan. He intends to fill the earth with that glory. He says, truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And that's from that book of Numbers again. Numbers 14 verse 21. A great passage of scripture to have in the back of your mind. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And the God's glory is everything about himself, really. There's two aspects to his glory, both his physical and his moral glory. And if we read Exodus chapter 3, we, we can learn about that. Exodus is another Old Testament uh, book uh, written by Moses. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So it's the second book of the Bible. And... Uh, it's, it's quite a good read. And there, we, there we, um, we learn about God warning Moses about his physical glory, his immense and awesome glory that, 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 that mere mortals cannot stand. Um, he can, he can uh, exhibit that or he can, he, can, um, he can diminish it. We see the sun or the shining brightness of angels, the Moses' face and Christ at various times. There's just a couple of tiny little examples. The heavens above us declare the physical glory of God and nuclear fission when an atom is split. You know, what an amount of energy that's released there. It's a part of the glory and power of the almighty God that he's, that he's physically put into those atoms and etc. in the creation. Over in Exodus, as he goes on, he pronounces his moral glory to Moses. And he says to Moses that, um, that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. He's long-suffering. He abundant, he's abundant in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But he will not clear the guilty. So that's the moral glory of the God that we worship, the God that we're talking about tonight, the living God who made the world. He has an intention to fill the earth with people who reflect his character. So that's really interesting, isn't it, just to, to stop for a second and think about his character. This is the sort of people that God wants to populate this earth in the future. He wants people that are like him, merciful, Gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and keep mercy. A merciful. Mercy stands out there, doesn't it? Mercy is a big element of the character of God. And that's bound up in his name also. You know, um, names are very important, particularly in, in the Old Testament or particularly in the old days in certain cultures. Names are far more important than our English names. They actually have meanings, you know. Most, meaning, most names that we have today don't really have much reflection on a person at, at all, really. Um, and they don't have a lot of meaning, really. But the name of God has a lot of meaning. And, you know, like, I think there's a proverb that says, a good name is better to be had than many, many riches, you know. And here's the name of God. And his whole purpose is bound up in his name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, with the vowels taken out. And you find that 
all over some of the geological uh, uh, excavations that they've pulled out of the dirts, dirt and the and the, the, the digs around the world, they found the divine name written in a lot of those different places. This is very interesting. But his name means I will be who I will be. I will be manifest. I will be seen in people who are like unto me. His, his intention is to fill the earth with people who reflect his character. Now God has anticipated that many are going to turn their backs on him. He knows that. He knows all things and he knows what the result's going to be. He has from the past and he does for the future. And sadly our era is same, very much the same as what's taken place in past times. Many people turn their back on the God of heaven. And Jeremiah 5 verse 31 says about Israel in denial. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule and by their means and my people love to have it so. My people of Israel. In Timothy, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or teaching, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. other words, they like to hear what they like to hear, and they'll be taught what they like to hear. After their own lusts, things that appeal to them is what they want to hear. Not the things of God so much, more the things of, of their own interests and their own desires. So we have to be very careful of that and stand apart from that and, and associate ourselves with the God of heaven and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our involvement in the future is pretty clear. Peter the Apostle was asked by the people what they should do after he gave them an exposition of the word of God. And he said to them, save yourselves from this untoward generation and showed them that baptism for the remission of sins was necessary for salvation. And so that's our appeal tonight, is to follow the advice of Paul and Peter. Peter who said later to the Thessalonians to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. And that's something that we can do if we want to take that course. We encourage you to do that to prove these things that we've said tonight. Go and test it out with Wikipedia. Go and look at some of the archaeological uh, digs. Read your Bible. Look at prophecy. Look at history. Be interested in these things because the time is coming very soon when the uh, great king of all the earth shall return from heaven to establish God's kingdom on this earth. Time is running out. We're commanded to go and preach the gospel. And he that believes the gospel, because the gospel really is the good news. That's what the word means. The gospel of God. The good news about God, about the coming of Jesus Christ. This really can be divided up into two areas. The gospel is about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And so if you believe those things and you are baptised, you will be saved. You believe not and then you stand condemned. So... God's offer of salvation is conditional. It's based on your own choice, really. God has given you a free will and, and thankfully we have a choice to make. We can make the right choice or we can make the wrong choice. But first we need to understand God's purpose with the earth and we talked a little bit about that tonight. Um, we've learned a little bit about God. There's, there's much more to, obviously, this is just a very summarised version. 
Once we understand his purpose and then we believe those things that we read and understand and then we're baptised and repent of our sins, we need to strive to follow a life of obedience. So that's about getting to know the living God. We encourage you with prayer to read your Bible because it will repay a thousandfold. Get to know the living God who made the heavens and the earth and we encourage you to do that. So he that believes the gospel and is baptised shall be saved and he that believes not shall be condemned. So we encourage you, dear friends, to follow that course tonight and hope you've enjoyed our, uh, our consideration. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.